The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello all. I hope you're all keeping well, or as well as is possible in the midst of this crisis. We're all learning to speak now with a few more euphemisms. So this is really another coronavirus therapy session for me where I talk about some of the things that I've learned recently and some discussion of the key issues surrounding the virus at the moment. I'm going to present some updates from the scientific literature and a little discussion on various topics. Now when I started writing this I was hoping it would be fairly short. As I'm looking at it now I've got about 15,000 words which typically means uh, two or three hours if I take the whole thing. So I'm going to split it up into different sections and I will try and name every paper I refer to. And one good thing about this is that they're all available open access online if you want to read them for yourself. Perhaps the most important thing to talk about in the scientific update section then is that there's increasingly strong evidence now that lockdown measures are working to reduce the spread of coronavirus. It's quite preliminary at the moment as these measures have only just been instituted. But a survey carried out on the public by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine suggests that people in the UK, at least, have reduced their daily contacts by around 70%. Now, you remember we talked about R0, the basic reproduction number, as the average number of people that an ill person will pass the disease on to. In earlier podcasts, we said it was probably around 2.2 to 2.4, compared to values for the seasonal flu at around 1.4. Now, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine suggests that reducing contacts by 70% has probably reduced the R0 to below 1, which means that as long as the lockdown is maintained, the epidemic should continue to shrink and should be shrinking now. So this should be good news for everyone. Uh, As mentioned before, there can be quite a long delay, though, between the peak in people actually getting infected and the peak in cases. To see why you can consider the simple situation where one person in a family catches coronavirus a day or two before lockdown and ends up dying, with apologies for being morbid, it could take 2 to 14 days for them to even get symptoms from exposure, then another 2 weeks to need to go to hospital, and perhaps 21 days on average from first exposure to death. So we maybe already have 3 to 5 weeks between an initial sickness and a death, and if they passed it on to another member of their household, then the clock has to start again, so you get a further delay for that person, and so on. And then there's likely to be even further delay while the death is being reported and certified. In the UK, we're getting daily death tolls, which are just awful to behold at the moment, although nowhere near as bad as they would be if we'd done nothing to try and stop the spread. But nevertheless, these daily death tolls are mostly just certified deaths trickling out from the last week. For example, in a day where 800 are listed as dying, the reality is that probably only 100 or 200 of those actually died on that day, and the rest happened over the last week or so, and they're playing catch-up. And they've actually started reporting the dates to point this out. So this actually distorts the curve of reported deaths relative to the curve of actual deaths. It will look like the death rate ramps up way faster than it does in reality, as more deaths are reported, but it will also look like it comes down much slower than it does in reality, as reporting gradually catches up to what has already happened. So the net effect of this is that for quite some time, unfortunately, reported death tolls especially will continue to rise and stay quite high before starting to flatten off. And the importance and understanding all of the nuances and how these things are reported is to appreciate that any day-to-day variation is probably just noise. You need averages over a week or more to be sure that the trend is going in any particular direction. A little bit like the difference between weather and climate. Now there's actually now increasingly papers that are saying that R0 might be a little bit higher than the 2 that we came up with before. The Imperial College team modelling the outbreak are moving to an R0 of around 3. 
There's a group of scientists from the Los Alamo lab who published a paper called High Contagiousness and Rapid Spread of SARS-CoV-2, which re-examines the initial spread of the disease in Wuhan. And they suggested that the r could be as high as 5.7, and the confidence interval, what they're 95% certain it would be, is between 3.8 and 8.9. Now, this higher r naught would obviously be a concern if it was true for several reasons. Chiefly, the r naught tells us how much we have to reduce our contacts by through social distancing and other measures to suppress the epidemic, to get it below 1, while the epidemic will shrink. And it also tells us the fraction of the population who could get the disease before herd immunity is established. An r naught of 2 might mean that around half the population would be enough for that population in general to be herd immune to new outbreaks, whereas an r naught of 5 would mean more like 80% of people might be required to be immune in a given population. Now it's worth saying that this high r naught study is one of many, many studies that are trying to determine r naught, And I think it's important to look into why there are so many differences in estimates. The first thing to say, of course, is that there are a hell of a lot of papers being published right now, many of which are being done quickly, and many of which are adapting very different methodologies for making their estimates. Inevitably, with so many data points to look at and so many different ways of grouping them, there's going to be a considerable spread in both technique and outcomes. And secondly, something like r naught is really a moving target. It depends on which outbreak you're looking at, the specific situation on the ground there at that time, and the data that you have. It depends on people's behaviour, and it varies over time. And of course, all of the things that we're looking at are not well measured. So even in this Los Alamo study, even if it's on the high end of all analyses, uh, which it is, is correct, then the r naught is only 5.7 for the early uncontrolled epidemic in Wuhan that they analysed, and may well be lower with even a few protective measures in place. Thirdly, and most importantly, we need to acknowledge the inherent uncertainties of the situation. How are people actually measuring r naught, the growth rate of the epidemic? You might want to look at the confirmed cases over time in an outbreak, but which outbreak do you use? We know of individual super-spreading events, similar to what happened in Daegu in South Korea, where one sick person, referred to patient 31, went to a big event and ate from a buffet lunch. As many as 1,200 people from the same church tested positive for coronavirus in the following weeks. This is obviously a special case. This person might even have a personal R of like 1,200 by themselves. But it's not usual that one person infects 1,200 others in maybe one or two generations. Yet clearly something like this can happen assuming that patient 31 was the only sick person initially in this church. Biologically speaking, we know that some people have no symptoms while others are coughing profusely. We know that, for whatever reason, some people's bodies manufacture more of the virus than others do. So how do you include these kind of outliers in your estimate of r naught? The real problem, though, is much more fundamental than that. You're using confirmed cases to measure the outbreak, but you also know that testing is very limited and unlikely to pick up mild or symptomless cases you know that some of these tests are sometimes faulty anyway. And you're trying to see how confirmed cases changed over time, but testing also changes over time. For example, the US massively ramped up its coronavirus testing at the start of March. On March the 8th, some news outlets were reporting that as few as 1,700 tests had been performed, with around 500 positive. By March 29th, there were 141,000 confirmed cases. Does that mean that US cases really doubled eight times in just three weeks, from 500 to 140,000? Or is a lot of this just an artefact of how the testing has ramped up now? So what can you do? I mean, the issue here is that you're trying to estimate lots of equations with lots of unknowns. You have to estimate the fraction of cases you're not currently testing. How can you do that? You'll have to use deaths or hospitalizations, which you know they're at least more likely to be reported and measured than mild or asymptomatic cases, People might not even know they have coronavirus. 
How do you convert from deaths to cases? You use the fatality rate and backtrack through time. This is the sort of thing that we were doing when we were saying that perhaps in the very early stages of an epidemic, deaths multiplied by a thousand gave you an idea of how many cases there might actually be. But we've already told you that deaths are reported late, and there's some evidence that they're underreported due to deaths that don't happen in hospitals. Equivalently, it's not entirely clear when a death is or isn't caused by coronavirus. So, for example, the UK released excess mortality figures this week, and it found that the uh, last week was the deadliest week in the UK since records began, which is very disturbing. And of those deaths, um, approximately half of them were caused by the new coronavirus, but there were many more uh, above the standard average that didn't mention coronavirus on the death certificate. So we don't know whether those were caused directly by the coronavirus or indirectly by the lockdown, or whether they've been recorded properly. It's extremely difficult. If you're not testing, there won't be confirmed coronavirus deaths, and some people who test positive for the coronavirus may have died anyway, although I personally think that will be quite a small fraction based on what we're seeing with these confirmed uh, excess death rates, which are obviously a lot higher than we would have had anyway. So your fatality rate is probably off too, and therefore it will be hard to determine cases just by inferring backwards from this. Then there's the fact that the fatality rate is going to vary anyway due to the healthcare available, the underlying population's age and health demographics, and random chance. So in short, there are several parameters I'd love to tell you more about. When an epidemic began in a given region, the R0, the reproduction number, how quickly the disease spreads, the fraction of people who have no symptoms when they get the disease, the fraction of people who go on to need hospitalisation once they're infected, and the fraction of people who go on to die once they're infected. Alongside that, you also want to know the number of people in any given country who actually have the disease right now. But we simply cannot be sure about any of these things because we have imperfect measurements for each of them in this epidemic. And the way people try and work out each one of them is by assuming one and then using that to infer the rest of them. For example, the Los Alamos study uh, uses the fatality rate based on the Diamond Princess and then they map that onto a more suitable age demographic. And then they try and use that to figure out r naught. Other studies will try to estimate what fraction of people have the disease through populations where testing has been done and the known earliest dates of introduction. So basically they're sort of estimating R0 by looking at the growth of the epidemic in terms of confirmed cases. And then they use deaths adjusted for the time lag to calculate the fatality rate. From a mathematical point of view, this is a really fiendish problem. We're dealing with multiple equations in multiple unknowns. And as we've said before in the podcast, several solutions are going to match up to the imperfect data for an epidemic in progress. For example, the difference between a slow-spreading epidemic that is very severe or a faster-spreading epidemic that is mild in most people. So I think these are all really important caveats to bear in mind throughout this process for whatever we say about the virus at the moment. And it really underlines the importance of individual studies where whole samples of people were tested and followed through to the end. So the Diamond Princess being a perfect example here, where we were actually able to test everyone on board that ship. We get a good idea there of how quickly this thing spreads, and also how likely it is to lead to hospitalisation and fatality in people. Now my best guess, based on the studies I've seen, is that maybe half of people are asymptomatic, although it could be as low as 20% or higher, depending on what asymptomatic means. After all, we've had cases where people have been tested and they haven't had symptoms, but we don't know if they went on to develop them. Uh, There was a recent interesting paper out of New York where they found that lots of pregnant women were presenting at the hospital, and many of them 
had coronavirus asymptomatically. Um, so it could be 20 to 50 percent. We don't really know yet. R0 is probably around 3, but it's likely in the range 2 to 5, and most of the peer-reviewed papers put it in the range 2 to 3, to be fair, although there are starting to be a few more on the higher side. We think the disease probably started circulating in January in most countries, and in November in China, and we think that the fatality rate is probably somewhere around 1%, although it may be less than that. I'd say it's probably likely in the range 0.5% to 1.6%. I haven't seen anything so far that is convincing me that these ranges are incorrect. But I think there's a general point here that's very important to understand about the nature of science, and it always bears repeating. A scientist is someone whose beliefs are influenced by the evidence in front of them, and robust, logically constructed theories that aim to explain the evidence, accounting for uncertainties. This means that scientists are painfully aware of the limitations of their studies and their methods, and the uncertainties of their estimates. Some people argue that this can make scientists inherently conservative. The fact that it takes an awful lot of evidence before we can make conclusive statements about anything means that we're not necessarily likely to be making these big, bold claims that can't be backed up later on. Scientists are wrong, often. Science is the process of gradually getting less and less wrong over time. But this is really a sign of the rigour that means you should trust science, especially in a situation like this. People who advance their views without evidence and without being open about how they came to those views or how they've accounted for uncertainties, errors and mistakes, often have no interest in being less wrong, whereas at least scientists have some interest in being less wrong. Imperial College actually provided an interesting set of estimates for the proportions of people that are infected in different countries right now using similar methods. So this is from their report 13, estimating the number of infections and the impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions on COVID-19 in 11 European countries. And the method they use is essentially as we described, fitting backwards from the number of deaths in a given country using the fatality rates that have been inferred already. In this case, they use the one from Verity et al, which is another imperial paper. Uh, the paper is called Estimates of the Severity of COVID-19 Disease. And this was done, I believe, from expats from Wuhan. Now that Verity et al suggested that of symptomatic cases, around 1.4% die, and including asymptomatic cases mean that around 0.66% of all people who get infected end up dying, with many more deaths at higher ages than lower. Now this paper is probably the most sophisticated estimate of fatality rates for the disease that I've seen so far, although that really doesn't mean that it's correct and it was using some early data. So given this method, if you work backwards from that fatality rate and you correct for the age of the various people involved, they estimate that as of around 28th of March, perhaps 3% of people in the UK, between 1.2 and 5, 10% of the people in Italy, between 3 and 26, and 0.7% in Germany, between 0.3 and 1.8%, had the coronavirus. So essentially what we're seeing here then is a more sophisticated way of working backwards from deaths to infer the real prevalence of the disease. This would mean that around 1.8 million people in the UK had coronavirus when there were only 17,000 confirmed cases. So perhaps as few as 0.1% of the cases were actually being detected here. Incidentally, we're saying that this rule of thumb that we discussed in previous episodes where you multiply deaths by 1,000 to get likely number of cases, that relies on exponential growth of the epidemic and it's probably not valid anymore because of all the suppression methods that have been put into place. Um, now that the deaths are starting to catch up to cases, it won't work anymore. But if you had used it on the 28th of March, however, you would have concluded that there were around 1 million cases in the UK at the time, and 
it seems like this more sophisticated method of estimating gave you 1.8 million. So, order of magnitude, it's right, which in science is pretty good. So as bad as things look, and they do look truly awful globally at the moment, it is worth remembering again that different countries are at different stages of the epidemics, and that it's likely that we are very significantly undercounting the true number of cases that exist, because many have no or mild symptoms, and many more can't get tested at all. In your country, this may vary. So there's another study here which uh, said it was called using a delay-adjusted case fatality ratio to estimate underreporting from the Centre for Mathematical Modelling of Infectious Diseases. And they suggested that 3% of likely cases in the UK are being reported now, 12% of likely cases in the US are being reported now, 56% of likely cases in South Korea are being reported now, and 30% of likely cases in Germany are being reported now. And these numbers actually end up lining up pretty nicely with Imperial's model. They would also suggest that 1.8 to 2 million were infected in the UK at the moment. And uh, Imperial are now actually keeping up-to-date versions of this calculator online in a really good website. This is imperialcollegelondon.github.io slash COVID-19 estimates. That's imperialcollegelondon.github.io slash COVID-19 estimates. And here they estimate the r naught in different countries. Uh, they think it's below 1 now for most countries. And they think that between 3 and 6% of Britain has had COVID-19 at some point. And you can get estimates there for other European countries. I don't know if they plan to roll it out to other parts of the world. So these are just some examples to illustrate that at the moment, it's very difficult to infer exactly what's going on from case numbers. Now we've talked about in previous podcasts that a really key intervention here would be big serology tests, an antibody test that can determine whether someone has ever had the virus. The reason this is so important is if we test a representative sample after an outbreak has been suppressed, we can know what fraction of people have had the virus for sure. Then we genuinely know the true number of cases and we can infer the fatality rate from that. And we can also get a better estimate for how quickly the disease is spreading. We can infer what fraction of people will end up needing to go to the hospital so we know how to plan critical care. And this is really, really important information for pretty much everything we need to know. Which is why it's frustrating that in the two to three weeks since we had that discussion, maybe more like four weeks now, there hasn't been massive progress yet. You would have thought that there would have been a big serological survey, if possible, coming out of China quite soon, given that their epidemic is over and Wuhan is actually getting back somewhat to normal, uh, although there's always going to be a resurgence probably quite soon in China at some point. But you would have thought there would have been a serological survey um, that was taking place. There is apparently one that's been enrolled on, um, but it doesn't seem like there's any concrete data or papers that I can point out to you there at the moment, and I did look earlier. It seems like Germany is currently the furthest ahead on this antibody testing then. One of the first, albeit small, tests they did was in the hardest hit region of Germany, in a town called Heinsberg, in a town in Heinsberg called Gangelt, with results first reported April 9th. Germany is planning to do a much larger serological test that will probably cover around 100,000 people, with results perhaps coming in by May, and that will clearly be much more representative, and will really start to give me confidence that we have numbers for hospitalisation and fatality getting really nailed down at that point. But I think this little study is interesting to report on, and we should however take it with a massive grain of salt for several reasons that I'll discuss later. So in this study they say they tested around 500 people, they found that 14% of them had evidence of past coronavirus infection, and that 2% of them still currently had the virus. So there's good news and bad news out of this. 
The bad news is that this is one of the worst hit regions so far, in Germany at least, and it appears from this testing that maybe only 14% of people have had the virus. So any idea that the epidemic in Europe at least is basically already over and most people have had it seems to be unlikely just based on this one small study. Chances are across Germany and most of Europe, the fraction of people infected is likely to be even lower than this. As you might remember, I never thought it was especially likely that COVID had already infected a lot of people, but it was one of the things that serology was supposed to rule out, and early signs are not good for the theory that it's already infected a lot of people. Sadly, though, misinformation surrounding this, and lots of other topics, has continued to spread almost faster than the virus. There is good news out of this, though. If you look at fatalities from this region and assume that 14% were infected, then you find that the fatality rate is just 0.36%. Now, this is only testing a few hundred people, so the difference between 0.36% and 0.6% or 1% is really just a few deaths. So it's difficult to say all that much just yet, especially because this test itself may not be all that accurate for reasons we'll get into. But had the fatality rate been 2 or 3% from this sample, I'd be worried that maybe... Uh, the estimate that I was sort of thinking was accurate is off. And this sample suggests that the 0.6% fatality rate estimate might not be too far off, and there's a possibility that it's even lower than that. So again, this is not to minimise anything at all. I mean, we're seeing an awful human tragedy. We're seeing that anyone can get sick and die of this disease, and we're seeing that a fatality rate of 0.6% could kill millions around the world by the end of this pandemic and sicken many more. We of course see that whatever the final fatality rate for COVID-19 ends up being, the disease spreading into a totally vulnerable population is more than enough to kill thousands and overwhelm medical systems in a truly appalling way. But if you're like me, you're a bit pessimistic about the ability of governments to control this in the long term, and so the best we can hope for is that there is a lower fatality rate and that treatments and vaccines can be found. So what about the other serology tests? There's a much larger one in Helmholtz, Germany, uh, which will have 100,000 participants, as we mentioned, with results expected towards the end of April, early May. There was a small one done on first responders in San Miguel County, Colorado. This is really interesting, actually. San Miguel County, Colorado apparently has loads of biotech labs, and they seem to have just done some antibody tests on the local population. Um, of the first responders, zero out of 645 tested positive. Uh, there were a few more tests that are being released on the San Miguel County's website, and so far it seems like maybe 1% of the population of San Miguel County, Colorado has coronavirus, um, which again might imply that the idea that most people have had it is wrong, but obviously it only refers to this one county by chance that's not known to have had a big outbreak. So it's very difficult to infer too much from that, aside from the fact that probably most people haven't had coronavirus yet. Another note on these serology tests. At the time we last recorded, the UK government were hyping the fact they'd bought millions of these kits and they were under development all over the world. Sadly, it seems like the first batch of kits weren't all they were cracked up to be, giving a lot of false results. They've actually failed quality control and reportedly the UK is asking for a refund. So it's a little awkward. And it's just further evidence that rolling out these antibody tests is going to take a little bit more time. One of the lines used is that a bad test is worse than no test. And I want to talk about why this is with reference to a piece of mathematics that's really relevant here, um, with apologies if it's familiar to some of you in the audience already. Now, the issue is Bayes' theorem. So Bayes' theorem is a way of working out conditional probabilities, probabilities of one event given that another has already happened. 
and this kind of example shows you why it's so important. Imagine that we have a coronavirus antibody test that's 95% accurate, which is apparently an actual figure for one of the tests that is currently being approved by the CDC in the States and was rejected here in the UK. In other words, we're going to say the false negative rate is 5%. If you have had the virus then, it tells you that you've had the virus 95% of the time. Now you might think it's amazing to take the test yourself. After all, then you'd be pretty certain whether or not you've had the virus, and maybe you could get an immunity certificate, which is one of the ideas that has been floated to help get economies back to work, or at least to allow people who are immune to serve in key roles without the risk of getting infected. This is where Bayes' theorem comes in. And it's all about this conditional probability idea, because 95% is the probability of testing positive given that you have the virus already. Bayes' theorem tells us that the probability of A occurring, given that we know B to be true, is the same as the probability of B occurring, given that A is true, multiplied by the probability of A occurring at all, divided by the probability of B occurring at all. So it's P of A given B equals P of B given A, multiplied by P of A divided by P of B. Now that's a mouthful, so let's make it concrete with this example. Let's say that testing positive is B and having the virus is A. What you're really after is the probability of having the virus given that you have tested positive. You want to know what testing positive really means for your chances of immunity. So this is P of A given B, and we know P of B given A, which is the probability of testing positive if you've had the virus. So you see how these things are different. Now we need to know the probability of a positive test. This is going to be 95% if you have the virus and 5% if you don't because of the false negatives. So it's 95% times the fraction of people with the virus plus 5% times the fraction of people without. Now we need to know the overall probability of having the virus, so that's P of A, regardless of whether you're tested or not. Here's where the problem is. According to our overall estimates, the probability of having the virus is actually pretty low. It might be 5% in some of the worst-hit countries in the world. So if we plug that into Bayes' theorem, we find that we end up with a probability of exactly one half. In other words, testing positive means that you're only 50% likely to be immune, not 95%. This is really complicated, but in a lot of ways it's a lot easier than that. It's simply that if the overall number of people with the virus is low, you'll mostly test people who have never had the virus if you test everyone. Then the false positives are going to stack up people who are told that they've had the virus and are now immune when they haven't really had it. Because the overwhelming majority of people have not had it, these false positives can outnumber the true positives, which will be most of a much smaller group of people who had the virus and which the test can correctly identify. Explicitly, we can use some numbers to help. Say we test 100,000 and 5,000 have had the virus. We end up testing 95,000 people without the virus. Of those, 4,750 will come back positive. Of the tests on the 5,000 with the virus, assuming again this 95% accuracy applies, 4,750 will come back positive. So we'll have 250 people who really had the virus who test negative anyway, and equal numbers of people who test positive who did and did not have the virus. You can see from this example that things get even worse if fewer people have the virus. If only 1,000 out of 100,000, or 1% have it, we'll have 4,950 false positives competing with 950 true positives, meaning that testing positive 
actually means you only have a 16% chance of having the virus at all. This is a well-known and well-understood issue in medical testing, and indeed there's often still a role for inaccurate tests despite this issue. One example would be regular mammogram screenings for breast cancer. Mammograms typically detect around 80% of breast cancers and yield a high 9.6% false positive rate for people who are really healthy. Because thankfully cancer is a relatively rare thing in the overall population, perhaps 1% or so actually have it when they're tested by mammogram, uh, this is another example of where Bayes' theorem becomes important. If you tried to work this out from just the raw numbers, if you've got a positive test, maybe you'd think 80% detection rate, so there's an 80% chance I'm sick, or 9.6% false positive rate, so there's only a 9.6% chance that this is a false positive. Both of these are wrong. By the numbers, and I stress this isn't medical advice at all, it's just an example, your chances of having cancer with a positive mammogram are only around 1 in 13. That's still, unfortunately, around 10 times more likely than in the ordinary population, so people with such a positive result should definitely be tested again or given a more accurate test. But the overwhelming majority of people who test positive on such an inaccurate test will actually still be healthy. Because they screen an awful number of people, so when they screen this huge number of people, the false positives outweigh the true positives. So what can you do? If you assume that each test is independent, so that it's just as likely to be right or wrong the next time you do it, you can actually do more mammograms. You can imagine this is repeatedly running the probability gauntlet. With the same numbers above, two positive mammograms in a row give you a 41% chance of actually being ill, and three positive tests in a row give you an 85% chance. So it may be possible that we could do multiple antibody tests on anyone who tests positive the first time, and eventually we'd end up with a group that we were pretty sure would be immune. The problem with that is that we don't know that each test is independent from the previous one. For some tests, there's actually evidence that they can be confused by the presence of antibodies to other coronaviruses. As you probably already know, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that causes COVID-19, and it's not the first coronavirus to infect humans. There was SARS and MERS before, yes, but also at least four other coronaviruses, called OC43, HKU1, 229E, and NL63. Each of those four generally causes symptoms of the common cold. Incidentally, when I first learned about this, I thought it would be kind of cool to know exactly which virus is responsible for my cold every time I get one. I get loads of them that usually differ in severity. I'm sure there's plenty of research out there into the common cold, but wouldn't it be nice to know if there are statistical differences between these viruses and how bad your cold is? And also it does make you wonder if there was once a catastrophic epidemic thousands of years ago, much like this one we're going through now, when these viruses first crossed into humans, before they mutated to become less dangerous. Anyway, up to 30% of common colds may be caused by one of these four viruses, and some of the tests can't distinguish between antibodies for these cold viruses and SARS-CoV-2. If this is the reason behind your false positives, then you're in real trouble, because chances are the test would make the exact same mistake next time, so you can't even rely on repeated tests to get you out of your Bayesian problems. Now that I've spent such a long time trashing antibody tests, you might be going, okay, how on earth can we trust the German serology test that you just told us about? You can see that in our example, where false positives far outweigh false negatives, the issue is that serology testing without correcting for Bayes' theorem is likely to overestimate the overall prevalence of the disease, and then underestimate fatality rates, which is not good. So you have to be really careful here. 
If the overall number of people with the disease is low, then you'll have relatively few people who really had the disease and are told they never did, but you'll have way more people who never had it and are told they did mistakenly. And the answer is, I don't know how accurate their testing kit was. I've seen reports that some are accurate up to 99.9%. .9%. They apparently do exist. It may be that they have tested multiple times with multiple kits, and we know that they backed up their testing with antigen testing as well, uh, throat swaps and so on. Needless to say, though, any good scientist will know all about Bayes' theorem, and they'll take it into account. So if it shows up in the peer-reviewed literature without being trashed, this isn't something to worry about necessarily. But it is a point to make that we can't just roll out inaccurate tests, and we need to be extremely careful with something as low prevalence as this, uh, that the tests are the height of accuracy um, for us to say anything conclusive about whether people are immune, and especially for us to start sending people back out into the community or back into dangerous situations uh, where we don't know for sure that they are immune. So if you go to the Centre for Health Security website, you can see that there are at least 20 to 30 different types of antibody tests being developed at groups across the world, and there's even information on the sensitivity and accuracy for some of the tests there. So it seems likely that over the next few weeks or months, we're going to get a lot more information from antibody tests, which will hopefully become more widespread and accurate over time, but it may be a few weeks before we have results from the first large study. Luckily though, there are thousands of people currently being tested all over the world, including blood donors in the US and the Netherlands, so it seems likely that we'll see some real data soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. We're up on the web at physicspodcast.com. Any comments, questions, concerns can go to me there. They go through to my email. I try and read and respond to everything that you send me. Um, we're on Twitter at physicspod. There's a Facebook page, which is relatively inactive, but you can always come there. Uh, I always like hearing from people, whatever the channel is. And uh, tell other people if this has been useful um, to take a listen. Aside from that, I guess, stay safe and take care. And I'll be back very shortly with another part of this pretty long rant on coronavirus-related scientific issues. And then soon, of course, some episodes on other topics. Thank you.